0: I've been gone for a few weeks now. Uh, I was uh, up in Seattle for a little bit with my family. And then uh, I got engaged up there to her, yeah. Stacy Shigaki. And uh, after that, we, we had planned. Before we even started dating, we had planned to go to Japan uh, about two weeks ago. So we ended up going, but we went under a little different circumstances. And uh, we flew all the way to Japan, and boy, our arm's tired. They laughed. Got it. All right. Thank you. Thank you very much. That joke killed in Japan, by the way. Anyways, we spent the first six days of our trip in Tokyo, and I was personally fascinated by the design of things in Japan. It's not that the design isn't noteworthy here in the U.S. It's that the Japanese take a different approach to design. That's a novelty to those who are unfamiliar with it, like me. So the phrase running through my mind throughout the trip was, form follows function. And I'd like to tell you specifically about the morning of day five of our trip in Tokyo. So we went to the famed Tsukiji Market, the fish market, where thousands of pounds of seafood you have tuna and maguro, and that's tuna too, and you have shrimp and you have crab and you have all these types of seafood just flowing in to Tokyo through this one central channel. And it flows from there to hundreds of restaurants in the Tokyo area. And it is a very busy operation. There's hundreds of people employed there, people running around left and right. There's carts, automated carts, shuffling around, styrofoam boxes filled with who knows what, left and right and up and down and all over the place. And it is just a blur of activity. And what they're most famous for, though, is the tuna auction. You probably have seen it in uh, some broadcasts sometimes. I'll talk about this, this famous tuna auction that happens from 5 a.m. to 9 a.m. every day. But there was a problem. The problem was tourists. The tourists wanted to go and view all this morning auction and sales action, and they were interfering with things. So what do you do when you want seafood wholesalers and tourists to get what they want, which is high-quality seafood, or pictures of high-quality seafood, (laughs) when when they want it, which is as soon as possible? And in my mind popped the phrase, form follows function. What they decided to do there was redesign the space so you see a picture here, up to the top, well, not the top right anymore, but off the blue blue box, that area is where they have the tuna auctions and a lot of the sales for uh, seafood in that area, wholesale seafood. And in the bottom left, that is where they have the majority of the shops and uh, restaurants in in that area. And you can see by this diagram here that there are many parts of this, this place that are off limits. The whole top left part or top right part of the uh, Areas off limits to everyone except for the people that are actually wholesalers, and they try to keep everyone to the bottom, uh, to the bottom left of the screen, where all the shops and the stores are. So, the function of the market defines its form. The tourists can take their photos. Wholesalers can uh, get the products to their buyers when they need it, and everyone's happy, and it all can happen after nine a.m. So. After that, we decided to walk through the market, and after we got our fill of wet and smelly uh, runoff, then we decided to have an early lunch at Tokyo Station. So we decided to take uh, the Yamanote line, which is the busiest subway in Tokyo. It's basically a big, giant circle that goes around uh, the perimeter of Tokyo. So we had taken this line before in the week, and each time we... It was not that packed. We had 10 minutes to go during non-rush hour times. But this time when we went, we noticed that all the seats were folded up. Why were they folded up? Form follows function. Ah. We were taking the train right after the morning rush hour when the Yamanote line often looks like this because the platforms look like this and the conductors are doing this. So what do you do when the demand for the train exceeds the supply of space in the train, form follows function, increase supply. They create folding seats. So when you fold them up, you can get as many people into the cars as possible, and you can get to work on trying. So after that, we arrived finally at Tokyo Station, and in the basement of this massive labyrinth, we found Tsukim and Ramen, which is awesome. Rokurinsha is Famous for this particular noodle dish where you basically have a bowl of soup and you have the noodles and you dip the noodles into the, the broth and you eat them and it tastes great. So Ruka Rincha is famous for this and it is an amazingly small space. It only seats 16 people at a time. And you're thinking, 16 people sounds pretty big for a shop. Like, yeah. Well, it's not really big when 16 people in a space that small would violate fire codes here in the U.S. It felt a little dangerous. And not when the line outside looks like this. At the busiest times of day, the wait can be over 90 minutes long. So how do you try to accommodate so many customers when you can't change the physical space? Form follows function, change everything else. The form of the environment is defined by the function. So first, they made the line longer. They used stanchions, ropes, and signs to keep people informed. 15 minute wait from here, 30 minute wait from here, 90 minute wait from here. And then they moved the line around so There was the initial line to get into the shop, right here, and then there was a secondary line across the hallway. So you would wait in line in this part of the hallway, uh, get to this spot, and then cross the hallway to get to the main line. So that was the first thing they did. Second thing they did was, let's streamline payments. So rather than having customers pay at the end of the meal to a human cashier, customers pay before they enter the restaurant using a vending machine. You select your meal. They, take your, they answer your money, and then you get a ticket, and you hand that to the waiter. So the payment's been handled before you ever walk in. The third thing they did was they made dining uncomfortable. <laughs> the diners eat on uncomfortable stools, and the restaurant blasts this high-tempo, high-energy J-pop music at maximum volume, so you're eating, so boom, 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 <laughs> boom. And then you add to that, there's all windows on all sides of the shop so the people that are waiting in line can see you And give you the Japanese equivalent of the stink eye, (laughs) and then you want to get done slurping that ramen as soon as possible. No, you're not going to have a discussion over the meaning of life in an hour over your bowl of soup there, but that's not the function of the restaurant. Its form matches its function. So today, we're beginning our journey through the book of Numbers, starting with chapters one and two, and there couldn't be two more different environments than the Japan of today and a Middle Eastern desert wilderness of 3,500 years ago. But one of the lessons that from that time still rings true today, which is form follows function in purpose, and later we'll see in identity. So let's begin with Numbers chapter 1. And for the sake of time, I'll be jumping around a little bit. But stay with me, and as much as possible, try to follow along on the screen. Verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses in the tent of meeting in the desert of Sinai. Now remember, what does in the desert, what's the important part about that phrase in the desert? Does anybody remember from when Pastor, uh, Rabbi Ari and Pastor Kevin were speaking the last two weeks? In the desert is, in Hebrew, the first word of the book of Numbers. And so that, in the desert, is Bimidbar. And so when you hear, when we talk to someone about the book of Numbers that is Jewish, they'll say, oh, you mean Bemidbar? Like, yeah, that's the one. So why do we call it the book of Numbers? Stay tuned. The Lord spoke to Moses in the tent of meeting in the desert of Sinai on the first day of the second month of the second year after the Israelites came out of Egypt. He said, by their clans and families, listing every man by name one by one, you and Aaron are to count according to, the, according to their divisions all the men in Israel who are 20 years old or more and able to serve in the army. One man from each tribe, each of them, the head of the family, is to help you. Moses, jumped jump ahead to verse 17, Moses and Aaron took these men whose names had been specified, and they called the whole community together on the first day of the second month. The people registered their ancestry by their clans and families, and the men 20 years old or more were listed by name, one by one, as the Lord has commanded Moses. So, and so he counted them in the desert of Sinai. And now we're going to come to the list, which is why we call this the book of Numbers. From the descendants of Reuben, the firstborn son son of Israel, all the men 20 years old or more who were able to serve in the army were listed by name one by one according to the records of their clans and families. The number from the tribe of Reuben was 46,500. From the descendants of Simeon, all the men 20 20 years old or more who were able to serve in the army were counted and listed by name one by one according to the records of their clans and families. The number... From the tribe of Simeon was fifty nine thousand three hundred, and so it goes on through the next of other ten tribes, except for levi let 's jump ahead to verse forty four These were the men counted by Moses and Aaron and the twelve tribes of, twelve leaders of Israel, each one representing his family. All the Israelites, twenty years old and or more who were able to serve in israel 's army were counted according to their families, and the total number was six hundred and three thousand five hundred and fifty so after all the repetition, who what made a, a male qualified to serve in the army? 20 years, Twenty years old or older, exactly. So remember that phrase. So let's take a look at these numbers. Question. Yes, sir. Why would it say able to serve in an the army and 20 years or older if you only had to be 20 years older? I'm sorry, wait, wait, what was the second part? You said so you said what makes it able to serve in the army? You said 20 years older. But it's like 20 years older and able and, and able to serve in the army, I'm sorry, you were right. So someone that's able bodied, if you were Somehow uh, unable to serve physically, then you would be disqual- uh, not disqualified but exempted from serving. Yes, excellent point. Thank you. So, taking a look at the numbers, we see that we have six hundred three thousand five hundred able men, and if you extrapolate those numbers, scholars have suggested that the nation of Israel numbered somewhere between two to two and a half million people, which is a big number because no archaeological findings in the region from that time have suggested that any communities in the region were as big as that. The cities in Canaan were considered to have much smaller populations. So Israel being that large offers a problem. If they were so large, then why did a small number of people? And we have a couple of verses here in Deuteronomy and Exodus that both suggest, uh, Deuteronomy one suggesting that there are seven nations, the Hittites, the Gershites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, that are all larger than Israel. So if we use that number, then those are all communities bigger than two and a half million, which is pretty large, especially for such a small space. And then from uh, Exodus, we also have God saying, I can't drive out everyone out of of the the promised land because there would be too many wild animals for you, and you were not large enough to actually take hold of the entire land. So again, suggesting that maybe the Israelites aren't as big as two and a half million people. So there could be lots of things happening here. Um, One thing is all these numbers match up with a census taken later on by David. So maybe they're using the same number to show that God has been consistent in his blessings throughout those years between uh, Exodus and the time of David. Uh, Maybe the numbers were inflated to show how God has blessed the Israelites. He's keeping his promise to Abraham and making his descendants, quote, as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the shore. So lots and lots of people in order to uh, keep his promise to Abraham. A third alternative is there's a mistranslation. There's a word in Hebrew called LF, and LF is usually translated as thousand. So if you look at the uh, English translation of this, or at the Hebrew of this, you'll see the numbers 46, LF and 500. So LF can mean thousand, it normally does, but it can also mean clans or families or even military units. So if you change that, this is what it starts to look like. And so you have things like 46 46 clans and 500, 59 clans and 300. And you can use these numbers in different ways. And some of the numbers that have been returned from doing these calculations are that Israel, the number of able bodied men in Israel was probably between 18,000 and 100,000. And so the community of Israel as a whole was between 72,000 to 400,000 people. What does that mean? Yeah, not <laughs> really that mean that much. It might be—that might be true. The numbers in the Bible might be true, but that's not really the point. The point is, the sentence was taken. And what was the census taken for? And a lot of people miss this when they, they read through this. So let's jump back to verse 3 of Numbers 1. You and Aaron are to count, according to their divisions, all the men in Israel who are 20 years old or more and able to serve in the army. The census was being conducted to let the people know the size of a potential army drafted from its ranks and to bring money into the army's potential coffers. Because earlier in verse 30 of chapter 30 of Exodus, God lays out a plan for how to tax during a census. And the tax was half a shekel for each person that was selected. So you can see here that God's starting to build something. He's beginning to build a staff and resources for an army but for what purpose? Well, he's going to drive out the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And God was not going to fight and drive out the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, as he had done with the Egyptian army. With the Egyptian army, God's instruments of war were pestilence and disease, the plagues. And he also used the pillars of fire and the pillars of the cloud and the waters of the Red Sea to free the people of Israel. But this time, he would use the nation of Israel. And he began to do that in Exodus 17, where we see Israel have a skirmish with uh, the Amalekites. But beginning in Numbers, the army of the Israelites would be just one of God's primary instruments of war. Now, we see this even more clearly in Numbers chapter 2. So, uh, I'd like the tribes as I've requested to come on up. I'd like the uh, tribe of Judah to come up here, the tribe of Issachar to come up here, the tribe of Zebulun to come over here. Not yet, not yet. And so I am going to read this off of here, and I'll try to do my very best. Okay. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, the Israelites are to a camp around the tent of meeting some distance from it, each of them under their standard and holding the banners of their family. Now, the thought was, uh, there's actually a verse in Joshua 3, I believe, where uh, the army was marching behind the uh, Ark of the Covenant, and it mentions walking about 2,000 cubits behind, which is about a half a mile. So the thought was that all the camps of all the different tribes were a half a mile away from the center, which is pretty far when you think about it. So, on the east, towards the sunrise... This is the east side. Wait. East side. (laughs) On the east, towards the sunrise, the visions of the camp of Judah are to encamp under their standard. The leaders of the people of Judah is Nashon, son of Abinadab. Hello, son of Nashon. How are you doing? His vision number is 74,600. The tribe of Issachar, here we go. We'll camp next to them. Actually, Judah, can you slide over? <laughs> I'm sorry. Judah, can you slide over one? Yes. And Issachar, can you slide over one? We've got to make get this right, because the Bible says we have to get this right. So if you can slide over two seats, please. You guys, step on up. So the tribe of Issachar will camp next to them. The leader of the people of Issachar is Natanel, son of Zuar. His division numbers, <laughs> thousand four hundred. The tribe of Zebulun is next. Zebulun. The leader of the people of Zebulun is Eliab, son of Helon. Here's Helon. Here's his son Eliab. Hey guys. Hey. And his division numbers 57,400. All the men assigned to the camp of Judah, according to the divisions, number 186,400, and they will set up camp first. Next on the south will be the divisions of Reuben under their standard. Hey Reuben. Hey. There you go. Oh. The leader of the people of Reuben is Elizur, son of Shadur. Oh, and his division number is 46,500. The tribe of Simeon will camp next to them. Hello, Simeon. And the leader of the people of Simeon is Shalumiel, son of Shaddai. I'm sorry if I'm, I'm messing up these names, but I'm trying my best. And his division number is 59,300. And last but not least, we have the tribe of Gad. The leader of the people of Gad is Eliasaf, son of Deuel. And his division number is 45,650. Thank you very much, Gad. All the men assigned to the camp of Reuben over there, according to the division's number, 151,450, they will set up camp second. First, second. Now, the tent of meeting and the camp of the Levites will set out in the middle of the camps. Can I have the Levites come on up, please? The priests and the Levites, come on up. <laughs> He's hiding, okay. Marari, here you go. Uh, where's my. Yes. We can't forget the Aaronites. The Aaronites are very important. Over here, please. And I had one more person. Who'd I have? Oh, there he is. You're <laughs> Sean, trying to hide from us. Come on up. The camp of the Liyads will set up in the middle of the camps. Here is our pseudo tent of meeting, <laughs> facing east that way oh, you're good you're fine and they'll set up in the same order as they encamp each in their own place under their standard next we have on the west the divisions of the camp of ephraim under their standard ephraim where are you there you are the leader of the people ephraim is Elishama, son of amin that would be let's uh, make this you yes and his division number is 40,500. The tribe of Manasseh, you're Manasseh today, hello, <laughs> sits next to them. The leader of the, tribe, the people of Manasseh is Gamaliel, son of Pedazur, and his division number 32,200. And the tribe of Benjamin is next. I don't know what tribe you're a part of, but they're the tribe of Benjamin. The leader of the people of the tribe of Benjamin is Abidon, son of Gideoni, and their division number 35,400. In total, they met, have 108,100 and they camp third. Lastly, but not least, the north. They'll be the divisions of the camp of Dan under their standard. And the leader of the tribe of Dan is Ahiezer. Hi, Ezir, how are you? And your lovely mom. <laughs> and his division number is 62,700. Next to him, the tribe of Asher will camp next. And the leader of the people of Asher is Pagiel, Pagiel son of Okran, and his number division number is 41,500. And the tribe of Naphtali will be next. The leader of the people of Naphtali is Ahira, the son of Inan. His division number is 53,400. All the men assigned to the camp of Dan, number 157,600, and they will set up last. These are the Israelites, counted according to their families. All the men in these camps by their divisions number 603,550. The Levites, however, in the center, were not counted along with the other Israelites as the Lord had commanded Moses. So the Israelites did everything the Lord commanded Moses. That is the way they encamped under their standards, and that is the way they set out, each of them with their clan and family. So, this is a map detailing the layout of this section, and you'll see that God is arranging the nation of Israel in a very specific way, and it's that of a military camp. 12 military units encamped around its commander and his administrative staff, and that's what we see here. And it's not unlike a lot of camps We've uh, camp forms of armies that we find in other cultures, including that of the Roman Empire, which is right here, where you see uh, lots and lots of uh, regular troops, soldiers, and then you have the primary leaders in the center of the camp, like we have here. You guys can put your signs down for now. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so if you look at the book of Numbers, you realize that this book is doing a lot more than just describing Israel's journey from Mount Sinai in the wilderness to the promised land. The book is describing a military campaign, starting with the assembly of an army and a code of military conduct and continuing with the invasion of the land of Canaan, followed by the scattering of native peoples and resettling this army into this newly conquered land. This perspective threw me for a loop, and it created a problem. How do I talk about the first and second chapter of the book in Numbers without addressing the apparent injustice of a foreign power coming to a territory and not just uprooting native people groups, but destroying their cultures and in some some cases, destroying their entire populations by divine authority? The answer is, I can't. there's no way to address this. We can't read only these two chapters from the book of Numbers and come to an understanding of why God commanded the Israelites to do something then that we today might consider morally wrong and and indefensible. So we won't address this today other than to say that the purpose of the form, this form that Israel took, it's much more than simply just building a power base but if you want to discuss it with me afterwards, I'm free, so just come and holler me, and we'll come back. But, and I'm, I'm for certain we will discuss this later on as we go through the book of Numbers. But what I have to focus on for the rest of our time, and I think this actually connects to this issue, is that the form of Israel followed its purpose, but it also followed its identity. In antiquity, the person who decided the physical form of the community was the king, who placed his lodging at the center. By this design, who was the king? God. In military encampments, the person placed at the center of the camp was the military commander for his protection. By this design, who was the general of the Israelite army? God. God was the king of Israel and God was the military commander of Israel. So we see throughout the book of Numbers that the field commander of the Israelites might be Joshua, out there fighting the battle. But it is God who gives the orders to fight through Moses. And he gives them the order when they're to fight and where they're to fight and who they're to fight. So these ideas of Israel as God's kingdom and Israel as God's army actually gets reinforced by the design of their encampment. But there's more. What were these? Can you guys do signs one more time? What were these individual camps organized by? Tribe, family. In these camps, you live with your father, your mother, your brothers, your sisters, your uncles, your aunts, your grandfather, your grandmother, and your cousins. You live alongside your extended family on your father's side. And living alongside you in each of these camps, Reuben, who's next to you? Simeon. Simeon. And Simeon is... Your cousins. This entire camp is your cousin. That side of the camp is your cousin. No matter where you would go in this camp, from north to south to west to east, everyone in this camp is related. Everyone is family. Thank you, (laughs) Stephanie. Everyone is connected. The community was your family. And who lived at the center of the community? God, the patriarch, the ultimate patriarch of the family. The camp was organized to remind everyone that you were family and God was your father. So you put your signs down again. Thank you guys for doing that. Now, this can be difficult for us to consider uh, and to relate to because so many of us don't live next to our families. Uh, Many of us live in different neighborhoods, different cities, different states than the rest of our families. But in some cultures, it's still the norm to live among your family. For example, up here, this is a picture of my mom's village in the Philippines. And so this is a road she was born and raised on this road. Uh, Everyone from one end to the other is a family member. It could be aunts or uncles or cousins. The practice was when they became of age, they gave them a plot of land, and they moved next to them. So when I visited there 16 years ago, I could go into any house on this strip and say, Hi, I'm Estella Tabor's son. And not only would they let me in, they would also feed me and let me sleep there for the night. It was just amazing. But living with family isn't easy. All the (laughs) expectations—that's right, Judah— all the expectations and the relationships and the dynamics, they can just drive you nuts. But no matter what, family is meant to be safe. And consider this. In armies, the camps are composed of soldiers, and the soldiers move from place to place with their camps. But where are the soldiers' families? Back home, they're away from the war and away from the battlefield. So who were the soldiers in the Israelite army again, Ezekiel? All the men 20 years or older who were able to serve. That's right. But who lived in the camp? Yes, and the men, and the women, and the children. The soldiers might have been the men, but every man, woman, and child was part of the Israelite army. The army was composed of the entire family, and the expeditionary camp, this camp moved along, and it was always home for these people. The form of the Israelite settlement was meant to reinforce the identity of Israel as God's family. They can put your signs down again. (laughs) Thank you guys for doing that. So let's look a little closer at these family units. We see here, here's the census order. And the census order is set up. Sorry, guys. The census order is set up by birth order and also by uh, who the birth mother was. So Reuben was the firstborn. Simon was the second. Simeon was the secondborn. Gad was the thirdborn. Judah was the fourthborn, and so forth. But when the camps were laid out, what was the camp arranged by? What was it arranged by? Size. Not size. It was shifted. We shifted so that the fourth son in the birth order was actually placed in the most prominent position, first. And the fifth son, Issachar, is second to the camp, and so on. Why does God change the order? I think it has to do with God's ten- tendency to flip the script on us. So he focuses not on hierarchy, but he focuses on worthiness, on egalitarianism. Abraham's second son, Abraham's second son, not his first, was chosen to carry the first birthright. Isaac's second son, not the first, was chosen to carry the birthright. And Jacob's fourth son, Judah, not the first son, Reuben, was deemed worthy to carry the birthright. It serves as a reminder to the people of Israel and to the nations around them that God's methods are ones of justice, not just the status quo. The second and the third difference is, it's all about the Levites. Levi's, raise your stand, signs up in the air, please. With the census, the tribe of Levi is not counted. No number, nothing. Why? It's because God told them not to. The ancestral tribe of the Levites was not counted with the others. The God, God said to Moses, you must not count the tribe of Levi or include them. Why were not they counted? Because God had a special purpose for you instead appoint the levites to be in charge of the tabernacle right in the middle of you of the covenant law over all of its furnishings and everything that belongs to it they are to carry the tabernacle and all its furnishings they are to take care of it and encamp around it wherever the ta- tabernacle is to move the levites are levites are to take it down and whenever the tabernacle is to be set up the Levites shall do it anyone else who approaches it is to be put to death And we see in the organization of the camp again that the Levites are set up in the middle of the camp around the tabernacle. And they're set up between the tabernacle and all the other tribes of Israel. Why would they do that? Let's take a look at the layout of the camp one more time. The Israelites are to be set up their tents by divisions, each one of them in their own camp under their own standard. But the Levites— are to set up their tents around the tabernacle of the covenant law so that God's wrath will not fall on the Israelite community. The Levites are to be responsible for the tabernacle, the care of the tabernacle of the covenant law. So, in other words, the Levites were there to protect the tribes from God. It would be like having the secret service, but in reverse. Instead of protecting the president from the people, the secret service agents would protect the people from the president. The Levites will protect the people from physically encountering the glory of God, keeping the people out of danger, and they would protect the people from God by bringing justice to them, by helping them to be just themselves, and to avoid injustice using a code of conduct, which we know as the 632 laws, and specifically the Ten Commandments or the Ten Words. So, of all the 12, or 13, technically, uh, tribes we have here, why would God single out this tribe for this purpose? And it might have, again, to do with God's tendency to flip the script on us. Before all of this happened in the book of Genesis, what was Levi, their predecessor, their ancestor, what was he most famous for? An act of violence. In Genesis 34, there's a Hivite prince named Shechem who sexually assaults Levi's sister. And in order to keep the peace between the families, Shechem's father and Levi's father come to an agreement. But Levi saw an opportunity for revenge, and he violated the agreement. On the third day, when they were sore, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and came against the city while it felt secure and killed all the males. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the sword and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their herds, their donkeys, and whatever was in the city and in the field. All their wealth, all their little ones and their wives, all that was in the houses, they captured and they plundered. Levi's act of violence and selfishness brought danger to the entire family. And now, Levi's descendants and their non-violent, selfless ways would bring protection and even wholeness to the entire family. One of the Levites, you might know, his name was Moses. He was a murderer. He was a fugitive. He was a humble shepherd, but he became the instrument through which God rescued the Israelites. God has a tendency to flip the script on us, and he uses what was broken and dangerous to bring about wholeness and peace. The form that the assembled Israelite nation takes in Numbers 1 and 2 tells us much about the identity of the Israelites as the army of God, as the subjects to a kingly God, as the part of the family of God, and as the beloved of God living alongside him. Their identity is the example or the light to the nations. And the form that we, us, here in this room, take, assembled, tells us about our identity. In worship services, Jewish and Christian communities take on different forms. So, for example, you normally wouldn't see it because when you come here, it's all been kind of covered up. But this is what ETS looks like uh, on a regular basis. So we have this set-apart space right here, which is set-apart for... The Torah, the Torah scrolls were located here called uh, in the Aron HaKodesh, or the Ark. And you kind of see it behind there. Uh, The reason why there's a focus on the Torah is because uh, when the Temple of Jerusalem was lost and the Jewish people were scattered across the world, they needed something to hold on to. And what that was, because they couldn't go and worship in Jerusalem as they had before, it became the Word of God, the Torah, the Tanakh. And so that became their focus when we talk about Catholics and Orthodox buildings, they often actually reflect the design of the temple in Jerusalem. And then they have these increasingly sacred spaces as you kind of go up. You go into more and more sacred, set-apart holy spaces. And the most set-apart of these spaces is referred to in the center as the tabernacle. And this is the place where only God alone can reside. For Catholics and the Orthodox, the presence of God is there physically and spiritually in the bread and the wine of the Last Supper. And, like many Jewish synagogues, many Protestant churches focus upon the Word of God. And so worship spaces are designed to place the proclamation of God's Word via reading, via preaching, and via singing at the focus of their worship services. And so many of the churches take on the form of a meeting space, a concert hall, or a lecture hall. And this is the form that we take here at Spark, except for maybe today. But normally, we take on that form at Spark. But, No matter where the Christian or Jewish community may be, the focus is on the presence of God in our midst. And for those of us who are followers of Jesus, our focus is upon Jesus as the presence of God. It is our belief in a God who, who when we were lost and lost our connection to him, he took human form in order to show us the way back. That becomes our identity. It is why we look at ourselves as members of God's army, fighting for him in very different ways, is why we look at ourselves as citizens in the kingdom of God, serving him and others as we were called. And it's why we look our, at ourselves as member, members of the family of God, loving him and others as we are meant to love. So, like many of our spiritual relatives, past, present, and future, our worship, our identity, and our purpose takes this form. We come together around this table to remember what our God has done for us, and the love that drew him to do that for us. You guys can see that. You guys can actually. But you are the priest, so stay close. (laughs) So you're all invited to to take part in this table. Arnold, welcome. Um, If you don't feel uh, like you should or you want to abstain, that's totally fine. But know that you're welcome to take part in this meal. And so we'll take part in it by uh, intinction, intincture, which means you take the piece of bread and you dip it into the juice and consume. But let me pray for us before we do this. Mm-hmm. And let me recite something to you. <sighs> Father God, thank you so much for this opportunity to come together as your family, to feel your presence, to know that you are here, to be gathered together. And we do this this week, this, this communion, as a reminder of who you are and what you've done. On the night before Jesus died, he had dinner with his disciples, and he took the bread. He broke it, gave thanks, and gave it to his disciples, and he said, Take this, all of you, and eat it. This is my body, which will be given up for you. And in the same way, he took the cup. He blessed it, and he gave it to his disciples, and he said, Take this, all of you, and drink from it. This is the cup of my blood, the blood of the new and everlasting covenant. May it be shed for you and for all so that all your sins may be forgiven. Do this in memory of me.